Hello, and welcome to Genderator. I'm your host, Jennifer Sanfilippo. In this episode, I talk with Rob Simpson, president of the Center State Corporation for Economic Opportunity in Syracuse, New York. A recent article in USA Today reported that Syracuse's child poverty rate is 47.4%, and the overall poverty rate for that city is 32.4%. As the leader of an organization dedicated to the prosperity of the region, Rob talks about the importance of intentional economic inclusion and what that looks like in relation to economic development in Syracuse. Welcome, Rob DeGenderator. Thank you so much for joining me. Great. Thanks for having me. So, um, first order of business, what region does Center State actually encompass? So, we have members across 19 counties in upstate New York. We're headquartered here in downtown Syracuse. Our primary footprint, where we do the largest amount of our work, is uh, the five counties around Syracuse. So, Cayuga, Madison, Oswego, uh, Cortland and Onondaga, although we do a lot of work over in the Mohawk Valley as well. Mm-hmm. So that clarifies for folks inside New York State who argue about regions and outside New York State who you know, need to visualize something outside of Manhattan. So thank you for clarifying. Absolutely. Now, you have quite an impressive background. You've been involved in economic development in this region for a long time. It seems to be a passion of yours. How did you come to this? How did you how did you get here? You know, really by accident. I don't think economic development was something that I expected I would have been doing even when I was in college or immediately following. Uh, I was a political science graduate from Colgate who ended up doing an internship on Capitol Hill and found myself in Washington, D.C. for the better part of seven years. But my wife and I are both from upstate New York. I grew up in Utica. She grew up in the Finger Lakes. And... Back in 2003, as she was finishing her master's degree in public administration at Syracuse, we were looking for opportunities to move back upstate. Um, We both found jobs in 72 hours in Syracuse, she working for the city at the time, and I went to work for a economic development organization, the Metropolitan Development Association of Syracuse and Central New York, and I've been doing some form of this work ever since. So what have you seen change over the last 10 years with regard to the region and the economy and the communities? I think the biggest thing that I've witnessed in the 15 years back in central New York has been uh, a psychological shift for the community. I think that the, there's no doubt that the 1990s, the early 2000s were a really difficult period, not only for Syracuse but for many of the upstate cities. Uh, changing nature and shifting nature of manufacturing and a variety of other economic and demographic forces. And I feel like I returned to the community at a point where um, the community psychology, its sense of uh, self-esteem was at a pretty low point. And over the last 15 years, I feel like I have seen that sense of uh, vitality, vibrancy, hope, optimism, innovation uh, return to our civic conversations. And That, frankly, uh, keeps me motivated to keep doing the work that I'm doing. In the area, it is a beautiful area. It's got a great quality of life opportunity here. So I can see the draw. I think it would be interesting for people to hear that you relocated back from DC to this area, but the Finger Lakes, um, the Ithaca area, it's all absolutely beautiful. Yeah, we, um, DC was great as a young professional. doing really interesting work on Capitol Hill, but 
the quality of life wasn't what we had been used to in upstate. Uh, we both spent a lot of time, my wife and I, in the Adirondacks as kids and enjoy the outdoors. And the recreational amenities that we were so used to were just harder to come by there. Uh, since moving back home, it has been, it's been really rewarding to feel not just that you can find a, a, a great professional opportunity in a place like central New York, but that you can also enjoy all the rest that life has to offer. Um, climbing and hiking and snowshoeing, skiing, the lakes and the rivers. Um, it really is the kind of place that sort of rounds out life, at least for our lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I was reading um, what M&T Bank's economist Gary Keith said about the labor force during your annual economic forecast forum. Now you're going through a period of economic expansion, which is really exciting. Um, and to your point earlier, the difference in 10 years about the vitality and, mm-hmm. and sort of how Syracuse and the area looked at itself to where it is now and the economic expansion you're in the middle of. But one of the um, prevailing points I, I see is this, um, and I'll, I'll read his quote for you, central New York's economy is improving but labor shortages could slow the gains. Expanding the pool of productive, well-trained workers available to meet employer needs will be critically important. And I know that you have mentioned that in the past yeah. as well um, when the Brookings Institute worked with you mm-hmm. on a strategic plan back in 2013. Yep. And I remember you sort of projecting that labor shortage would be an issue. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, today it is probably the most prominent conversation we have with employers. Um, People who are looking to grow, to expand, folks external to the region who might want to make an investment here, the first question that they're asking us is the availability of labor. Unemployment for the region is down at a historic low, I think 3.8% for for our region, which is really amazing when you think about uh, where it has been at some points in the last decade. That means that there's a significant amount of pressure on uh, those few people who are in the labor pool who are still looking for jobs. We've seen a lot of wage appreciation over the last few years, which frankly I think is a good thing. Wages in upstate New York, particularly in central New York, have been pretty significantly below the national average for a very long time. And now we're seeing the wage acceleration to a point that is actually higher than the national average, which means we're catching up a little bit. That's good. More wages in people's pockets means more money to spend on restaurants and retail, supporting small businesses. At the same time, the challenge I think that we're facing is that our overall population in central New York has not been growing or expanding at the pace at which some other parts of the the country are. And so as employers are adding opportunities, they're creating new jobs, um, their ability to fill those jobs is is really dependent on their ability to tap an increasingly smaller number of people who are looking for work. And that's where you end up in some cases with pretty significant skills misalignments, right? The labor pool that you have doesn't align with the skill set of the employer's needs. And it creates real challenges. Um, we've seen it slow growth of some companies. We've seen companies locally who have made decisions to uh, open offices in other parts of the country because they felt like the labor market was going to be more conducive for them there. Uh, we've also seen a lot of companies who've been very successful growing and expanding here despite the tight labor market. But they're having to do things like pay more, uh, and they're having to get more creative with their recruitment strategies and with their outreach. Mm-hmm. 
And getting creative with the um, outreach and recruitment strategies uh, falls in line with um, one of the things that this new talent task force has identified, looking for hidden talent pools. Yeah. And I was wondering if you would speak a bit to um, the, the inclusion idea that um, you've identified. Now, but I've heard a couple different terms uh, used. Uh, economic inclusion and intentional inclusion and of course just basic inclusion and I guess let's start with inclusion what is what does that mean to you and how do you define that so inclusion to me means uh, having an economy where economic opportunity is accessible by the broadest uh, portion of the population I think we see this is not just a Syracuse and Central New York trend. It's really a, a national, and in many cases, an international trend, um, widespread socioeconomic disparities. And the reality is those disparities are created and perpetuated in many respects by, um, by public policy, um, by our existing human resource practices, by geography, right, where certain labor pools are located, where certain populations live versus where uh, certain centers of employment are, right? We see this in the urban-suburban divide in many respects. So when we talk about economic inclusion at Center State CEO, we're really talking about trying to change the systems that perpetuate the either conscious or subconscious exclusion of certain people from having access not just to a job, but having access to good paying jobs with career ladders that can allow people to progress and ultimately allow their family to, um, you know, to, to move up the economic ladder, if you will. So you're a very forward-thinking organization. Um, I think you're actually a thought leader in this space. So when you turn to something like um, uh, intentional inclusion, now you've got that sort of foundational idea of what economic inclusion is. What then is intentional inclusion? And how do you work with your member uh, companies, something like that? So intentionality for me is really the crux of the work. Um, listen, uh, Syracuse and Central New York are one of, have one of the highest concentrations of poverty of any metro in the country. That's not a distinction that is helpful to us economically in any way. Um, that headline is not something that is easy to sell if you're going out to the market and trying to recruit new business. It's certainly not helpful when you're trying to recruit new people to your community. And so my message, our message, I think, in working with the business community has been that we have um, not, just a, um, not just an awareness of the problem, but we have an obligation to be a part of the solution. And the reality is that uh, poverty in many respects is an economic condition, not all respects, but in many respects, and that economic solutions often um, are the purview of the private sector and the marketplace. And what I've seen just in the 15 years I've been doing this work has been a real siloing, um, a really unfortunate siloing of people who purport to work on community development, right? I'm working in a neighborhood, I'm working on affordable housing, I'm working on you know, eliminating blight and vacancy in a distinct geography for a distinct population. And people who work on economic development, 
who are working to attract new business, expand existing business, start new businesses, and connect those businesses to national and international markets, right? These two disciplines that operate without talking to each other. And the reality is what we're trying to do from the business community standpoint is tap into all the resources that our members have, that private corporations have, that the private sector has, those market forces to, um, to really help align with the very human interests on the ground in, in neighborhoods. At the end of the day, when you think about the equation, it's pretty simple. Uh, employers need employees to be successful. Even in an age of increasing automation, you know, the, the, the primary and most important input is, uh, is human capital and intellect. And the reality is, is that what people who are economically disadvantaged need more than anything else uh, is they need the ability to, they need the skills and the ability and the opportunity to access a job that pays them a wage that they can support themselves and their families. So the, the economic interests of these two stakeholder groups are absolutely and fundamentally aligned, but the language that each of those groups has often used are not always aligned. And those conversations haven't necessarily been brought together in the way in which they need to. So intentionality for us is bringing those two conversations together, exploring points of, of shared opportunity, and investing the time, the treasure, the resources of the private sector in being a part of those solutions. And how are you doing that? Well, I think in a lot of different ways. We've worked and partnered with some of our anchor institutions. I think about St. Joseph's Hospital on the north side of Syracuse. For the last 10 or 11 years, we've been working with them um, not only to help them uh, fulfill their strategic plan for the hospital, but to do that in the context of the neighborhood in which they operate. Um, so we've worked directly with the hospital and community partners on things like affordable housing um, so that people who are nurses at the hospital can afford to live and feel safe living in a home right near uh, where they're employed. Um, by, on a parallel path, by eliminating some of the blight and vacancy uh, and abandonment that existed in the north side neighborhood around the hospital, we're making it easier for the hospital to recruit doctors who want to come and actually work at the hospital and feel safe in that environment. Uh, we've worked with them on, uh, on training programs so that the refugee and immigrant, immigrant population that predominates the north side uh, are having access to and being given opportunities to enter into the training pipeline with ladders for career advancement in the hospital. Mm -hmm. That's just one way in, in one situation. I'm a big believer in the fact that every business has tools that they can, um, that they can leverage in this intentional conversation about inclusion. And you talk about a couple of them. One, which is um, employers hire, right? So they have a whole set of hiring practices. What types of jobs are they hiring? How are they going about hiring? Where are they advertising for those jobs? You know, just recently I was out with an employer and they were telling me about the fact that they had 60 open positions and they were frustrated that for those 60 open positions they weren't getting very many applicants. When you start unpacking what their, um, what their mechanisms were to provide outreach, you know, they're the traditional mechanisms. They're putting it classified in the newspaper. Well, there are a lot of people who are out there that have the willingness, ability, capability to work who might not be picking up the newspaper and looking for a job in that way. So how do we tap into other networks, informal networks, neighborhood-based organizations that are working with populations who are seeking employment 
to try to help employers expand their lens onto the labor pool that's available. And then how do we break down some of the some of the um, some of the unconscious things that often happen in those hiring practices um, that dissuade people from participating, right? Um, criminal convictions, uh, driver's license requirements, associates or bachelor's degree requirements, which in, in some respects are necessary, but for many jobs aren't. They're just a product of a, or a vestige of a, of a human resources culture that, um, that hasn't matured as quickly as the needs of our employers have. And your people have been partnering with your member organizations to help them re-examine some of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think we do see it as our job to help our members uh, re-examine some of that. We don't see it as our job to, to lecture to them or tell them what they should do, but we do see it as our job to help them understand that if their challenge is we don't have enough applicants for a particular job and skill set, um, then our challenge becomes how do we help expand that labor pool and help you get more applicants in the door. And, and there are a lot of different ways that you can do that that go beyond traditional, well, let's advertise more places or let's try to recruit more people from outside. I'm of the belief that there are, there are thousands, thousands of people right here in, in our communities in central New York, whether it's in Oswego or in Syracuse or in, in Auburn, that want to work but that have been disconnected from the opportunity to work for one reason or another. So before we spend volumes and volumes of resources trying to attract new people from the outside, um, we ought to be spending time and energy trying to make sure that the people who are here, who want to work, are actually given and afforded that opportunity to work. Mm -hmm. Those hidden talent pools. Absolutely. I, I mean, there are assets, they are human capital assets in our community that are not being fully taken advantage of. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist by training, but you know, the longer I've done this, the more you start to realize um, there's, a, there's a significant economic inefficiency in having someone that has real skills who is not utilizing those skills to add productivity to the regional workplace and to bring a wage in that they can then be spending again in our regional economy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just an inefficient way for us to go about um, sustaining our, our economic circumstance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I did see that um, in, in your speech on the forecast, uh, you surveyed, I think, your member organizations. Yes. And uh, there's, uh, it looks like there's a projection of a need to, of a 55% hiring um, need for the coming year, or for this year, right, 2019. Uh, but what really struck me was the uh, skill level needs. And I thought it was really interesting that you broke it down. There's a 54% need an entry level, 66% in mid-level, and 57% in higher skilled right. um, jobs. Uh, that's a really interesting mix. So when it comes to attracting talent, you are also, um, your companies are also faced with retention. Absolutely. And uh, what does that look like? Uh, and how are they retaining their, their talent? Yeah, so it is interesting. I think right now there's a there's a narrative out there um, that I've heard that it's primarily the high-tech employers that are having a hard time finding people, engineering firms and software and IT companies. And the reality on the ground that we see is very different than that. It is across the board. Uh, talked in the last two weeks alone, I've talked to eight companies that are customer service centers, call centers, 
um, who are uh, who are looking to hire between three and four hundred people collectively between those eight employers over the course of the next six months. Mm-hmm. Um, those are not traditionally high skilled jobs. Um, and, uh, and they're jobs that people have the ability to access starting at the entry level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, that, um, I think that we see talent, demand, and need across the entire spectrum. Obviously, the challenges of an employer that's looking to fill engineering roles are, are different. Um, you can't just uh, put, put an individual who might want a job into a, an advanced um, systems engineering job at a high-tech company. Mm-hmm. Um, it won't work. Um, that, that person doesn't have the skills. So we got to work on educating and training our pipeline of, of people starting from pre-K all the way up through our educational system. Mm-hmm. That's something that we have to be better at in central New York. You also have to work at, um, at, as we talked about before, expanding those labor pools. But for our high-tech workers and employers, a lot of the strategies do revolve around a recruitment from the outside in. Mm-hmm. How do we help more people from, um, from outside of central New York see the quality of life? see the the really compelling job opportunities and want to come here and live here and buy a home here and and make this part of their future um you talked a little bit about retention and i think that it is definitely something that we are starting to see as wages are increasing in our marketplace there's definitely some some job sharing that's going on between key employers you know someone will jump from one place to the next because there's a slight increase in wage and and likewise um, it is a concern and I think it goes back to my fundamental um, belief that what we need to be focused on from a regional standpoint uh, is about expanding our labor pool, right? Because just trading employees between employers doesn't solve your overall problem. There's a labor shortage. So we've got to grow that pool. And we're going to grow that pool in one of two ways. We're going to grow that pool by tapping into people um, that are not being currently put to work, that, that want to and have the skills and capability to. And we're going to grow that pool by being better at attracting and recruiting talent from outside of the region to come into the region and apply their trade. Mm-hmm. So um, when you speak of inclusion now, uh, and the reason why I brought up the stratification in the job needs for the area is that uh, the inclusion, the economic inclusion and intentional inclusion to bring people actually into your companies and tapping these uh, hidden hidden talent pools uh, is really important. What I'd like to talk about is what happens when they get into a company then, mm-hmm. because there's also an inclusion need of um, culture. You Absolutely. know, are people comfortable then bringing their whole selves into their em- Employment and bringing their creativity. Mm-hmm. What kind of inclusive cultures are here in, in central New York, which would make somebody of, from a marginalized population comfortable as an engineer or a biochemistry tech or um, in any one of those STEM fields? How are your companies approaching inclusive cultures to make an expanded um, talent pool feel comfortable yeah, and want to stay? I think it's a great question. I do think that this is one of the, one of the big challenges, I think, that faces business uh, and increasingly faces business. As our, as our population in the United States, the demographics change rapidly. Um, I, I don't think, I'll just say this out loud, I don't think that the, um, that the overall uh, business climate, corporate culture, uh, employment culture is changing as rapidly as, as the demographics around it. I think that's a real risk factor and liability for 
many employers. There are some employers that are leading the way, and uh, and that's something that um, that's something that we need to encourage. I mean, I think about uh, I think about companies like Wegmans here in uh, in upstate New York, and you know, widely regarded uh, as one of the best places to work in America year over year, and perform really well on uh, on diversity um, on diversity indexes in terms of how they. Uh, how they welcome people of all cultures into their business, or a company like Stickley that makes uh, high-end furniture here, right here in uh, in Manlius, New York, and I think they have 37 or 38 different nationalities that are represented on their shop floor, mm-hmm. right? So they literally like the virtual United Nations of mm-hmm. of employment and taking advantage of the full skill sets. Um, but they've the employers who've done it have been very intentional about making sure that um, people have access to on-the-job. You know ESL training. They have access to other on-the-job resources that um, their cultures are celebrated internally at the organization um, and not marginalized in any way, shape, or form. And it's really important. Part of our process is we run programs like Work Train that tries to connect, particularly marginalized populations, to high-demand occupations. There's really two key areas um, of support beyond the job placement and the job training. The first is what are the systems and process changes and cultural changes inside an employer that need to take place in order to, um, in order not only to attract this employee to work there, but to retain them, mm-hmm. right? And so I think about a, a company like Loretto uh, that we've worked with over the last couple of years. We place hundreds of CNAs with uh, with Loretto, mm-hmm. and Loretto now has an embedded job coach inside of their. Uh, inside of their organization that they're paying for as a part of this program and that job coach is, is primary responsibility is to take the people who are graduating out of the work training program who are signing up to be a CNA at Loretto and to make sure that their experience inside Loretto is a positive experience so that those people don't leave after three months or six months or a year. Now that's an investment that Loretto has to make in their own workforce and what they're finding is that investment is paying really great dividends. They're actually saving money because their turnover rate is dropping significantly, right? So there's an economic benefit for the employer, but it, again, it goes back to that word intentionality. It requires an intentional investment on their approach. Mm-hmm. The second set of supports that's really important is what we, what we work with our community partners to bring to the table. And that's all the, the supports that the employee needs outside of the workforce, mm-hmm. outside of the workplace, I'm sorry. Um, how do they... How do they deal with um, transportation issues if they're having them, mm-hmm. or uh, or perhaps uh, they're facing an eviction? What kind of legal supports does, does that person have? What kinds of healthcare supports do they and their family have to prevent them from slipping into some of the cycles that that hold generations of of, of families back in poverty? Mm-hmm. And so we work really closely with a lot of our community-based organizations that are providing those supports and make sure that those supports are being wrapped around the participants in our work training program so that they're being supported in the workplace, they're being supported outside of the workplace, and they're being given an opportunity that they might not otherwise have had. So you're talking about what you're able to do internally and the conversations you're having with your member organizations about intentional inclusion. Um, and you, you certainly talk the talk with some of your workforce training partnerships and programs that are really impressive. One of them is I think you said nationally known and being replicated. 
what do you think about partnership with the government on, um, I hate to use the word quotas, but targets, mm -hmm. targeted um, targets and goals for uh, creating inclusive environments? So, for an example, California just set their um, a quota to have at least uh, one female on boards of directors for companies headquartered in California. Right. And that's just to start. New York State takes a little different approach. If you want to do business with New York, you have to demonstrate in some instances that you've reached a, I think, is it a 30% WBE um, business yep. uh, contractors? And those are um, outside forces. Um, that are actually saying, okay, it's great that you all are working on this, but if you want to do business here, let's go back to New York, you have to accomplish and demonstrate X with hard numbers. How do, how, what's your take on that and how do you work with that? So it's interesting, you know, with a public policy background, uh, I've, I've been around uh, regulatory and, and, you know, legislative bodies and actions for, for my entire career. And I think I have a perspective that, um, that oftentimes uh, that there's real need for policy change and systems change. Um, policy is a very effective way to drive systems change in many respects. But there's always unintended consequences from some of those policy decisions. Um, one of the things that we try to do here at Center State is to, is to get beyond the policy and the regulatory issues. Something can be mandated, but up until the point where a business feels like it is in their best economic interest to perform something, They'll fight those regulations tooth and nail. In some cases, they'll challenge them legally. In some cases, they'll ignore them. Uh, in the worst cases, they will completely avoid them, whether they should or shouldn't. And we really try very hard to, to help our members and to try to lead a conversation around understanding the economic merits for doing some of the things that a policymaker might say, this is, a man this is mandated because it's the right thing. Um, and and so I'll give you I'll give you a good example. Can I just stop you yeah, there for one please. second though, because um, there is the moral argument, but it's becoming more broadly accepted and and proven analytically that a diverse workforce and a diverse uh, leadership structure actually contributes uh, to your competition, to your competitive well, advantage. One hundred percent. But so let me give you I'll give you two anecdotes. So one. Um, there's a MWBE requirement for um, from hiring a, cer a certain percentage of women or minority-owned contractors on on a project, right? So a general contractor can go out, they can subcontract out 30% of that work to a minority contractor, a minority contractor business, uh, and uh, and they've achieved their requirement under the state of under the laws of the state of New York. And you could turn around the next day and you could walk out to that job site and you could see almost no minority representation on the job site. So you've accomplished a goal of supporting minority-owned business, in this case, the subcontractor, but you haven't necessarily created the types of participation, uh, broad-scale participation, beyond that one transaction. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's one example of a place where even the best and well, most well-intentioned public policy aren't always optimally efficient. So we should work with the system, we should change those, we should amend those. Generally speaking, I think um, there is, there's need for it. These changes, though, 
you know, those policies are designed to account in many respects for what I see as a as an otherwise a market failure, right? Is that these it's not happening, right? Minority contractors or small businesses or women-owned businesses aren't being engaged. But we have to figure out how we do. If we want true broad-based economic opportunity for all, um, we have to figure out how to get beyond the nature of a mandate and have people understand what you said, right? The data and the research and the analysis that shows that it's in your best economic interest to have a diverse workforce, right? Which means you need to change your human resource practices to do outreach to populations that you might not otherwise be seeing. That and you, you might sh- need you to shouldn't... change your internal structure and, and right. advancing people. And that if all you do is take every job opening you have and send it around to your network, your your candidate pool is going to look exactly like your network, yeah. right? And that there are things that that each of us, as individuals, as employers, organizations, businesses, can do to try to break that long-term cycle. But people have to understand how and why it's beneficial to them to break that cycle. And I think one of the opportunities that the labor shortage, you know, we'll go back to where we started, the labor shortage right now offers us a really compelling opportunity to talk to employers about how changing the way they do business to allow for a broader and more diverse applicant pool is in is clearly and obviously in their immediate best interests when they can't find talent to fill their jobs. I um, wonder how much pushback you get from your membership when you start having these conversations. Surprisingly little. Um, you know, some conversations are easier than others. Some some employers get it more intuitively. Um, some some CEOs get it immediately, but there's a you know there can be a bureaucracy inside there. You know, particularly larger businesses that that might be an inhibitor to quick adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience with the business community is actually um, that they are extremely open-minded so long as conversations are framed in that economic competitiveness argument, mm-hmm. right? I think this, this goes back to the point I tried to make earlier around the two universes. You have your business and economics over here, and you have your community and neighborhoods over here, and the language they use is sometimes very different, mm-hmm. right? A CEO of the company is focused on competitiveness, on hiring, on profitability, on uh, on finding the next customer, and you know, and someone in a neighborhood is worried about you know whether it's vacancy, blight, or you know the the social, the moral needs of of um, you know broader engagement and employment. It's not hard after doing this for 15 years. It's not hard for me to see how those goals overlap. Mm-hmm. But if if you haven't lived in both worlds, if you don't understand both. Uh, the language of both of those stakeholder groups, it can sometimes seem from the outside looking in like they're talking past each other and that there's no opportunity for common ground. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a piece of the work you mentioned earlier, passion. I think that's a piece of the work that I didn't necessarily expect to enjoy as much as I do. Helping people who have common interests but don't see it, Mm -hmm. find that common ground and work together and ultimately both benefit from it. That's excellent. That's true leadership. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks, Jennifer. I really appreciate it.